Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. I didn't wear green because the only green I have has a big number 11 on the front. And uh, I didn't want to rub it in while we're reloading and you're rebuilding. So uh, I didn't want to do any of that. Uh, It's good to see you here today. We had an amazing moment on Friday night. Uh, a, a group of Christians from eight different churches, some pastors and some lay leaders, gathered here in the sanctuary for a prayer and revival night. And uh, we just spent a couple hours seeking the Lord for his movement in this region again. It was a great time for us. Uh, if you are interested in finding out more about the next one of those, which is happening at Grace Chapel in another month, you can talk to Mike Guile or Sam Hazelton about that. They'll get you the information you need. But it was a lot of fun. And uh, in the future, we'll let you know about that. hope many more of you can join us for that. We are here in Daniel again. We have been working through this great book chapter by chapter. The first six chapters uh, were more or less a select group of experiences that Daniel and his friends had. And uh, last week in chapter 7, we noticed that the content and the style of writing changed very drastically from Daniel 6 to Daniel 7. Right? In Daniel 6, where it's a story of an old man and the, who refused to give in and compromise. He stood for God and he was rescued from the lion's den. Last week, he saw a vision of some crazy stuff. Right? And we said last week, when we switched gears into Daniel chapter 7, that the genre, the style, the very category of writing is different. And it is no longer narrative writing like you would find in the historical books, things like Joshua, things like Judges, uh, things even like the Gospels, where they're telling a story of what was going on in the world. But now we moved into something called apocalyptic literature. And we said it, li- apocalyptic literature is like the literary shock treatment. That, that it's, it contains elaborate and dramatic visions and symbols and creatures and scenes and it is used, there's a function for it all. It is God's word as it re- is revealed to us. It is his sovereign plan and his wisdom as it comes to us. But it's designed to alarm us. And so when you read the apocalyptic books, when you read uh, Daniel, when you read Revelation, it should alarm you. It's designed to alarm the people of God, to, to incite them, to, to wake them up and alert them. And what does it alert them to? Ultimately, it alerts them to the reality of God's final triumph over evil. And it's used in that way to awaken the people of God to repentance and obedience. As they see the wandering and the rebellion and the backsliding in their own hearts. And they they find themselves kind of awestruck again with the glory and majesty of the King of Kings. Sounds enjoyable, right? Apocalyptic literature is a lot of fun, but it presents its problems for us. We end up, like we're going to today, we're going to see a vision and an interpretation. Daniel gets an interpretation, and now a couple thousand years later, we have to try to interpret his interpretation of the vision. It it gets a little challenging for us, to say the least. But as we have continued to say, the main and clear things are plain, and God's word comes to us. There's a a word that they... (laughs) reformers use the perspicuity of the scriptures which is a word that means that it comes to us in clarity you would think that they could have come up with a better word that means clarity but it, it means that the bible is revealed to us by god in a way that is clear to us and not all things are equally clear some of them are a little challenging for us but it is all revealed in a way that we can understand so daniel chapter 8 is where we're going this morning. i'm stalling daniel chapter 8 is where we're going this morning we're gonna start in verse 1 
And we're, I'll read until I stop. I haven't decided yet. All right. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that which appeared to me at the first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I saw I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one, out of, one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That sounds like a good place to stop, doesn't it? That could keep us busy for a long time. All right. Well, I've entitled the message today, The Nation's Rage. Because as we're about to see, this, this vision is about two kingdoms raging against each other. Last week in Daniel 7, God in his goodness revealed a panorama of Gentile history. From the time of Daniel to the return of Christ, we saw the whole thing. Today, what we're looking at in Daniel 8 is a small portion of that big parade. We're talking about like one section of that panorama. He's, he's focusing in on this section and highlighting it. It's important to Daniel. It'll be important to us. It's certainly important to the captives in exile and the Jewish people beyond. The nation's rage. The first thing we see this morning is Daniel's vision of a conflict. He's kind enough to give us that timestamp again in the third year of King Belshazzar. So once again, we have this helpful detail, and that serves to do a number of things for us. It, it helps us to understand where we are in the timeline events. So if you're keeping track at home, and you're writing a chronological telling of Daniel up to this point, it goes one, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 5, chapter 6. 
right? That, if we're doing it in chronological order, that's how it would play out, which is very helpful for us, isn't it? Just, the third year of King Belshazzar, we're jumping back into uh, the Babylonian reign, but just beyond the basic order of events, it also does something else to us. And we keep reminding ourselves of this because for those of us who are familiar with the scriptures, sometimes they become a little, we come, get a little too comfortable with them. And we forget that these things are not just spiritual truths that God revealed mysteriously sometime long ago. These were real things that happened to real people in real places at a real time. And in this case, this real thing happened to the prophet Daniel in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, where he served. This was a historically uh, rooted event. And he helps us with those, uh, with those details. He says that in the vision, he saw in a vision that he was in Susa, the citadel. So in his vision, he was in Susa. He wasn't in Susa at the time he had the dream or the vision. He was in Babylon. Susa was 220 miles to the east of Babylon. It was the winter residence and the administrative capital of the Persian Empire. You'll remember for those of you who are nerds like me, you'll remember that Nehemiah was in Susa when he received the word that the, uh, about the dilapidated state of the city of Jerusalem. In his vision, in Daniel's vision, he was there in Susa at the Ulai Canal. Have any of you ever had a dream where you were all of a sudden transported somewhere, which was not your house, it was not your home, but you were somewhere else in your dream? Yes, you did. Don't lie to me. You did. You all did. Recently, you did, and it probably in some place really weird where you never should have been, right? Like you, that happens to us. We are, are we are transported somewhere else. Daniel is in Susa. He recognizes it. You ever have a dream where you've been somewhere? You're somewhere else you've never been, but you know where it is. Those are really fun. Like how did that happen, right? So anyway, Daniel's in Susa at the Ulai Canal, and in the dream, here's what he sees. He sees beside the canal a ram with two long horns. And one of the horns grew taller than the other and came up after it. So he sees a ram, two horns on his head. One of them was bigger than the other one and then was overtaken by the second. Well, thankfully, we're not left to wonder what this ram is and what these horns are. Because in chapter, in, uh, chapter 9, verse 20, in just a little bit, when we get to the interpretation, he's going to tell us, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is the bear. The, remember the lopsided, the lopsided bear from the previous chapter? This, this is the same empire. The, now it's represented by a ram, but it's the same principle, right? One horn taller than the other. One side of the bear was higher than the other. Persia grew to dominance in that alliance, and it became the leading empire. So a ram is a fitting symbol, one commentator said, for according to, uh, to Marcel, Marcellinus in the 4th century, the Persian ruler carried the gold head of a ram when he marched before his army. Remember the lion, the winged moon racer, by the way, was the name of the king of the island of misfit toys. Thank you for all of you who texted me. Remember the, remember the lion with the wings that they actually, archaeologists, discovered in the ruins of Babylon? King moon racer? Right? They, they, they discovered him there so they knew that Nebuchadnezzar, even though, even though we might not have known that before, was prophesied as a lion and actually identified as a lion. This kingdom uh, identified with the image of the ram. And the ram had two horns, nothing overly special there, but one grew up 
stronger than the other. And this ram, this empire, seemed to be invincible. It charged westward and northward and southward. Medo-Persia, according to the New American Commentary, made its conquest in exactly those directions. To the west, it subdued Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor, and made raids upon Greece. To the north, Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea region. To the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. The Medo-Persian Empire expanded exactly the way God revealed to Daniel long before it ever transpired. And no other nation could stand against this ram. It just did what it pleased, and it grew to be great. In fact, until that point in history, no empire had ever held that much territory. And as he was considering this, as he was thinking about this, as Dan- I mean, this is alarming to anybody. If you saw it, you'd be confused. What does that mean? If all of a sudden you have some weird, you have some weird, I, mean, I can't even tell you about all the weird dreams I've had because you would just laugh me off the stage. If you have some weird dream that's just really confusing to you, why in the world did all that happen? What's going on? You immediately start to try to put it together. Like, what was that about? Was that spaghetti that I had? Like, did I just eat something that didn't agree with me? Like, what in the world? So Daniel is considering this thing, trying to figure out what all this is about. And as he's considering, he's confronted by the sudden arrival of another animal. This time a goat. But this is no ordinary goat. This is an angry goat. Quick time out. I'm not, I'm not telling you to do it right now. But you should definitely search YouTube for videos of angry goats. It, it won't help much with your sanctification, but it is a hilarious waste of a few minutes. And if I could have found a way to make them work today with the sermon, I would have put them in. I laughed hysterically. YouTube angry, right now, YouTube is getting a spike in angry goat searches as we speak. But you should definitely look for that a little bit later. This goat came angry. Right? He came swiftly. His feet weren't even touching the ground. He was moving with such power, such speed, such force. And he came to the ram to confront him. And as he confronted him, Daniel says that he saw the, that the collision of the, ram, the goat with this prominent horn. I don't know if it's like a unicorn goat or what, but that would probably be a good Google search too. A unicorn horn. Right, with his prominent horn, he confronts the, the ram with the two horns, and the two horns of the ram are instantly broken. That the power of the collision unsettles this kingdom and empire that up until this point had conquered more territory than any empire in the history of the world. This is a sizable collision of kingdoms. And what happened then is that the, uh, the ram's horns are broken and they're trampled and the goat became exceedingly great. The prominent horn of the goat was broken off at the height of its power. We're talking about Greece, Alexander the Great. This is the, the leopard vision that we saw last week with the four heads and the four wings. This prominent horn is broken as Alexander the Great dies suddenly in his early 30s. And then something strange happens. Out of the place where the great horn had fallen, four horns grow toward the four winds of heaven, to the north, south, east, and west. The, the empire is still in control. The leadership of the empire still extends to the known world, north, south, east, and west. 
It is still a global force, still maintains its influence, even though the prominent ruler has been killed. This is exactly what happens with the Greek Empire. Long before it had ever occurred, God had revealed it to the prophet and stored it for us. And then, then something also unique happens. Out of these four prominent horns, a smaller horn started to grow, but eventually grew powerful. And it grew powerful toward the south and east and toward the glorious land, toward, toward God's land, the promised land, toward God, the land of God's people. And this little horn grew great, even to the host of heaven, throwing some of the stars down and trampling on them. And the host of the stars, interesting designations there. We, this little horn being great was so proud that he asserted himself against the saints of God and against God himself, against the prince of the host. This little horn saw himself as great, thought of himself as God, and demanded that other people see him great as well. And some of you are thinking, ah, the little horn, we remember him from last week. It's the Antichrist. No, it's a different horn. That, that horn from last week grew out of the Roman Empire and the ten horns of the Roman Empire. This horn grows out of the four remaining kings of the Greek Empire. Different horn, different king. Different era of human history, yet intricately connected. And what happens as this horn grows great, the mark of his reign is terrifying. The regular burnt offering is suspended. That this king, it says, takes away from the prince of hosts his burnt offering. The, the daily sacrifices to God are ceased. He stops them. This, this king, this little horn, overthrows the sanctuary of the prince of hosts. This, this little horn... It, gains dominion over the host as they're given over to it. This, this king that rises from the Greek empire will throw truth to the ground and trample it underfoot. And it will act and it will prosper. This is a startling and a terrifying vision. Because now, Daniel is not just seeing a panorama of Gentile history. He's now seeing how the leaders of the Gentile world are going to persecute God's people, the saints, the prince of hosts, the host. We see now a terrifying vision because all of a sudden this activity that God is bringing to the world is going to be brought home to God's people. And as he's standing there, Daniel hears a holy one. A holy one. An angel. And the angel is talking to another angel. Kind of like at the beginning of It's a Wonderful Life. All right, they're looking at George's life. and Call Clarence. Angel, second class. So the angels are talking to one another. And Daniel's question is actually asked and answered by the angels. Because Daniel's question when he saw this is how long is that going to be? How long will that last? How long will this king be given dominion over God's people and be able to rebel against him and suspend the sacrifice and overthrow the saint? How long will all of that chaos be unleashed on God's people? How long will it last? And the angel says to him, with precision and clarity, 
Well, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. A couple options there. That could mean 2,324 hour periods. 2,300 days as we know them, which would be a little over six years. One option could be 1,150 evening sacrifices, 1,150 morning sacrifices, which would bring the total to a little over three years. Option three could be it's just symbolic numbers and that God didn't intend to really chart a calendar at all and we should just let it be symbolic. And what it tells us is that there's coming an end to the suffering. Yeah, so whatever you think it is, that's cool because I, I don't know. I have my ideas. And we'll get to them in a little bit. But the point is, the clear and plain thing is after these 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. How long will it last? And the answer is, may, may be confusing to Daniel in the, in the imagery of the 2,300 evenings and mornings, but what he hears for sure is that there's coming an end to the suffering. That the persecution stops. That, it, that the reign of this king out of the Greek empire, that his reign of terror is limited and held in check by a sovereign God. Okay, you know, at the end of this passage, Daniel says that he's sick and overcome and he lays down. I think I'd like to do that right now, if that's okay. Can we do that? Uh, the interpretation is then given. So here, now we see the vision of conflict. We see this terrifying vision of global conflict and persecution against God's people. And it's confusing and, and he doesn't understand it all. So one gives him an interpretation. There's one standing like a man, and while Daniel was seeking to understand. And he hears a voice. Look at verse 16. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. The angel Gabriel appears. Remember Gabriel from the story of Christ's birth? He appears to Zechariah. He appears to Mary. Here he is appearing to Daniel, helping him to understand the events that are being foretold. And when Daniel, when Gabriel comes near to Daniel, where he came near to where he was, Daniel was so frightened that he fell on his face in a posture of humility, in fear and terror. Now some of us, when we read prophecy, we get all amped up and excited, and it intrigues us. And we imagine that Daniel was like us, that when he read prophecy like this, or he heard and experienced this, that he got really excited to open the history books and try to figure it all out. The man was sick. He was overwhelmed with fear. He hit the deck, trembling. And an angelic messenger had to tell him to get up. He says, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Wow. Well, the end of what? Instantly our minds are transported. Does that mean the end of the earth? Does that mean the end of the age? Does that mean the end, those of us who are Christians, does that mean the end right before Christ's second coming? Is, is that the end we're talking about? Is this horn the Antichrist that we looked at last week? Or does he mean the end of the events that are prophesied in this passage, which seem to be an unfettered... Um, persecution of God's people at the hands of this specific king. And while that little phrase has led to some significant confusion all, all over the, the years, I believe it would be best to see it as referring 
locally to this chapter and then pointing us to the realities of the Antichrist in the end. Because there are so many similarities that we could see. So in a way, it's both. It's my opinion. The vision concerns the events that are here in chapter 8 and the end of the persecution that is predicted and fulfilled. Who was this king that rose from the four empires, or the four generals of Alexander the Great? This king is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the tenth in the line of Seleucid kings. He, he unleashed on the Jews the most horrific persecution they had ever seen. He assaulted the character and essence of God in his rebellion. And in that way, he embodies all that, the, all that will be true in the Antichrist in the end. He is a physical, historical person. And he was wicked and evil and empowered by the enemy. And in his life and essence, he gives us a framework and a shape by which to envision the Antichrist who will come at the end. So Daniel in response to the weight of this vision, falls into a deep sleep. And the angel's touch wakes him up again. And here he is on his feet. And he says, look, I'll make known to you the vision. The vision refers to the appointed time of the end. This is so helpful. So oftentimes when we, when we get a prophecy, we're not sure of the interpretation and we struggle to put it together. God in his mercy has already shown it to us. You get, the, you get the prophecy at the beginning, you get the interpretation at the end. How nice of him to wrap it up for us like that. So here, here's what he says. I'll make it known to you. The ram, verse 20, we are told right here that as for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, that's Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. They were great, but they didn't have the power of Alexander. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. And his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are their saints. This is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So the ram is succeeded by the goat, the male goat. It's actually the shaggy goat. And he's an angry shaggy goat. Again, YouTube that. That is Greece, the first king of Greece. Philip, or Alexander, the son of Philip of Macedon who assumed the throne at a young age, came swiftly against the Medo-Persia Empire, and in a matter of three years overtook them. In just ten years, he rules the world. And now you can see why in the vision, he comes with his feet not touching the ground. You can see why in the vision of the leopard in Daniel 7, that the, the wings, he's got four wings, and they extend all, all to the uh, different directions of the earth. This king comes fast and furious, and he controls the entire world in less than a decade. But it was broken. He died suddenly. He was either poisoned, he died of malaria, but he died suddenly. And his two sons, his heirs, were murdered. And then four of the generals remaining divided the empire. These are the four horns. And the four heads of the leopard that we saw last week. It's the same vision. Same, same 
imagery, just a different beast this week. Amazing how God revealed in such astonishingly clear detail before Babylon had even fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire and obviously before Greece had fallen to them. And even though Daniel didn't quite know what it meant, because for Daniel it was prophecy, for us it's history. See, Daniel receives this prophecy and he's like, oh God, I don't know what you're doing. We received the prophecy, we look back in our history books, because we took world history in like eighth grade, and we go, ah, look what God did. He reveals it hundreds of years before it happened, and through history we can see his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. For Daniel, though, it was all in the future, and it was unsettling. And who, what about this little horn? After, after their reigns had run their course, at the latter end of this Greek empire, the little horn would rise to great power. And it's not going to be his power, it says. This little horn was empowered by the enemy, by Satan, as he brings fearful destruction. And we talked a little bit about this guy already, Antiochus IV Epiphanes of the Seleucid dynasty, dynasty, which was one of those four powers that rose after Alexander's death. It says he has cunning and deceit. He usurped the throne from his nephew. There's the deceit and cunning. And he soon secured leadership over what was a small empire, but he aggressively launched a campaign to take the Near East. James Boyce tells us this, that he put an end to the daily sacrifices at the temple, that he forbade the circumcision of Jewish infants, He made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. He made it a personal goal to inflict pain and suffering on God's people. So he stopped the sacrifice. He trampled the truth underfoot, threw it to the ground. He inflicted pain on God's people. This is exactly what Daniel saw. As this prince raised himself in opposition to the prince of the hosts. And then, in 168 B.C., His reign of terror reached its fever pitch. He attacks Jerusalem in anger. He desecrates the temple of God by placing a statue of Zeus inside, even going as far as to offer on the altar swine, which was the most degrading thing that he could have done, offering an unholy, unclean animal on the altar of God. The most offensive affront. Later this act was labeled the abomination of desolation. And he considers himself great. His name is known to us in part because of the inscriptions that he had minted on coins from that era. Which bore his image and the phrase Theos Epiphanes or God made manifest. Do you find it ironic that a king who claimed he was God incarnate, set himself against the kingdom of God, ultimately was defeated right before the arrival of God incarnate. (laughs) You tell me our God doesn't have a sense of humor. So here he is. Under his rule, the Jews endured unequaled suffering. And he says, the vision of the evenings and mornings is true, but seal it up. So what is that vision of the evenings and mornings? It was, it was after the 2300 evenings and mornings that the suffering of God's people would stop and the sanctuary would be restored. So how do we interpret that? Well, historically it looks like Antiochus' 
um, terror on the Jews lasted a little more than three years. It seems best to interpret that in the second option, that the 2,300 evenings and mornings were 1,150 morning sacrifices and 1,150 evening sacrifices. So each cycle would be one. And if you don't like that interpretation, that's okay. I'm fine with that. It's not, it's not the most important part of the passage. The most important part is at the end, the temple is dedicated. At the end of that cycle, those 2,300 evenings and mornings, at the end, the temple is restored and dedicated. That traumatic reign is over. And thankfully, because of history, we can look back and we can see that when Judas Maccabeus, after leading a revolt, rededicates the temple in 164 B.C., and Jewish people all over the world still celebrate that holiday today. It's known as Hanukkah. All of it foretold right here in Daniel. So there you have it. Daniel has given, he's given a vision of chaos and conflict, and he's been given an interpretation, which for Daniel was still a little bit incomplete because he didn't understand when all this was going to happen. For us, it's no problem. We have a history book to look at. Let's look at the prophet's response in verse 27. The Bible says that Daniel was overcome in verse 27, that he lay sick for some days. And then he rose and went about the king's business, but he was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he was overcome. He suffered a severe physical and emotional response to seeing all of this. It wasn't just exciting for him. It was overwhelming. You ever been given a secret? A big secret? You ever been handed information that you have to hold on to that's important and you know you're not allowed to tell anybody? Daniel was told to seal all this up. This vision meant unparalleled suffering for his people. He's the only one who knows. God said, write it down and seal it up. He lay sick for some days. And then he got up, because he doesn't stay down for long, and he fulfilled his duties. It says he was appalled by the vision. What was appalling to him wasn't that God was speaking to him, because that, that was a gift that he had. What's appalling to him is the suffering that is coming on God's people. What's appalling to him is the, the arrogance of this horn that raises up. He wages war against the prince of hosts. And he doesn't understand it. And you might think, of course he understands it. He has an angelic interpreter. He understood exactly. No, he didn't understand when. He doesn't understand who. He doesn't understand when all this is going on. He's right now living at the tail end of the Babylonian Empire under King Belshazzar. The Medo-Persian Empire hasn't even taken over yet. The Greek Empire hasn't taken over that. Alexander the Great hasn't fallen. The four kings haven't risen. And then the little king, he has no idea when all this is coming. He has a collection of animals fighting each other on the banks of a canal. That's what he has. We have the privilege of being able to see through history the testimony and faithfulness of God. He had nothing but hope. He didn't understand it. But with the divine aid of the Holy Spirit, we, we have the ability to put it all together. And again today, we need 
to ask God to reveal to us what is clear and plain and allow those things to stand on their own and to inform the things that are less clear and less plain. Okay, so so what? I'm so excited to get to this point. So what? What does all this mean for us? Well, I hope you don't feel sick for some days with this one. I have, I have a few things that I think we could see out of this passage. The first is this. The God of Daniel, the, the God that you and I worship through faith in Christ, his only son, that God, the God of the Bible, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has revealed himself, this God that we serve sees what has not happened yet, and he tells people about it. The God that we serve is a God who reveals hidden mysteries to his people. Because the God that we serve is unlike any of the gods of this world. The God Daniel served is unlike any of the gods of the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the, the Greeks or the Romans or the false gods. The God we serve is sovereign and is in complete control over all the affairs of this world. We seem to keep coming back to that theme over and over again in the book of Daniel. And it's no surprise because the people of God living in exile need to be reminded as they're in exile that there is a God in heaven who presides with sovereignty over their suffering. Because without that, what hope do they have? We keep coming back to that over and over again. God's strength and his might bring comfort to those of us who know him. He's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the, this, is, this will shock you, he knows the, the end of our great nation, whatever that will look like. We have predictions about how that will go. Chances are pretty good that it's not going to endure forever. No nation has ever endured forever. Our God knows the end, knows what will replace it if the Lord will tarry, knows the, the, the risings of the kings of the world and knows the putting downs of the same. And he proves it by revealing to his prophet truths that could never be known apart from his revelation. The God we serve is in control of human history, and he reveals it to us. The second thing we see is that in God's perfect providence, there are times when suffering will mark the people of God individually and corporately. And while, while we don't walk around looking for that kind of suffering, if you do, you have a problem, right? If you, if you walk around looking to get in fights, that's a you problem. That's not persecution. That's just you, right? We're not going around looking for persecution and looking for trial, but in God's providence, there are times where the church individually and the church corporately endure suffering according to his great purposes, And when that happens to us, may we say with James that we count it all joy when we encounter trials of any kind. You know, as uncomfortable as it is for me to say this, our comfort is not guaranteed. What is guaranteed is our security in Christ, our, his presence with us in suffering, ultimately good triumphing over the ashes of evil and trouble in our lives. All of that is guaranteed in Christ. What is not guaranteed is comfort and peace and tranquility. And you say, well, how, how in the world would that be worked together for good? Well, out of the ashes of the exiles, 
out of, out of what seemed to be a hopeless, desperate place, launches a band of rebuilders that go rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Out of the ashes of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Roman Empire is established and Christ comes and his new kingdom is instituted. Could it be that in God's ultimate plan and purpose that he's able to work our suffering and our trials and our struggles into his glory? Absolutely. And thirdly today, we end with this. There is an end to the suffering. But there's, there's a lot of interesting imagery that we see, the numbers, the, the signs, the broken horns and the goats, the angry, hairy goats and the rams fighting each other. We, we see all of that, yes. But what we see clearly is that there will be an appointed time when the fulfillment of these things comes and suffering is put to an end, trampled underfoot under the reign of God Almighty. The same way Antiochus IV Epiphanes it was put down in a divine way is going to be the same way that at the end of the age Antichrist is put down the same way and is in the same way that all who have rejected Christ will be put down under the righteous judgment of God. But the saints, the people of God, those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have seen God for who he is, the Most High, those who have humbled themselves beneath him, those who worship him, those who have received his grace and forgiveness through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, to them, God gives the kingdom. He takes it from all these rebellious, arrogant, strong rulers of this world. The people that we would look at and assume are right leaders, qualified and perfect. And he takes it from them and he hands it to us. And we rule and reign forever with Christ. There's an end to our suffering. There's coming an end to the suffering. But that will also mark an end to the opportunity for forgiveness. Call on the Lord today while he may be found. If you're here today and you've never, you've never called on the Lord to save you from his just wrath, you've never trusted Christ to be your savior, today is your day. There's coming a day when all these things will be fulfilled, suffering will be ended, the kingdom will be handed to us, and there will be no second chances. Today is your day of amnesty. Today is the day where Christ would say, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Repent of sin, turn in faith to Jesus, be born again today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom that is presented in your word. Lord, thank you for your, your power and your, your omniscience. Lord, there's no way that Daniel could have put all of that together apart from your spirit providing it. And God, we just rejoice that at this stage in human history, we can look back over your faithfulness over thousands of years and we can watch as you promised and fulfilled, promised and fulfilled. And as we feel as though we are living in exile in a dark day, and as it feels as though the world is closing in on us and evil and wickedness is rising against the people of God, we struggle sometimes, God, to maintain hope. Remind us again that you're faithful to your promises. 
that there's an end to the suffering, that the kingdoms of this world will be brought low before the kingdom of Christ, and that all of us who have trusted you for salvation, who've been born again by the living God, all of us will be inheritors of that kingdom and will rule and reign forever with you. Remind us again that our God is greater, our God is stronger, he's more powerful than all the kingdoms of this world. And if God be for us, who can be against us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.